Okay, so the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of faith. And in our morning series, we've been looking at Abraham. Abraham, who is presented in the Bible of this great example of faith. As we're asking this question, well, what does faith look like? We're called to this life of faith. And this morning, as we come to chapter 15 in Genesis, we're going to be considering the question of what is the reason for faith? What is the reason for faith? So as we've been working through Genesis so far, we've seen in Genesis, uh, at the very beginning, God's purpose for humanity, to fill the earth and subdue it, which speaks of a humanity spreading the goodness, the glory of God across the whole earth. And yet, humanity, they reject this calling. We rebel against God. We choose self-rule. And the result is that rather than the goodness and the glory of God filling the earth, it's filled with violence and with wickedness. And yet, God is not done with humanity. And we see this time and time again at the beginning of Genesis. Then in Genesis 12, he calls this man Abraham, who at this point is known by Abram. And through him, Through Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless all peoples on the earth. God is going to restore that purpose, that the earth is filled with the glorious presence of God. But as we come to chapter 15, we see two big obstacles that stand in the way. So Abraham, his wife Sarai, they're childless. It's a bit of an obstacle if you're going to fill the earth. And the land is occupied. Occupied with violent forces. And that's another obstacle in subduing the earth. And this is a situation that Abraham, he has to respond to in faith. And yet we see more than the response of faith in this chapter. We see the reason for faith. And so this morning we're going to spend some time looking at this reason for faith. Two things that we're going to consider. Two reasons. And that's God's creative power. Uh, verses 1 to 6, and God's certain promise in verses 7 to 21. So if you've got a Bible with you, do have it open or have it switched on, however you roll. Uh, Be looking at Genesis 15. We're going to begin at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. After this, after what? After what we saw last week in chapter 14. So God delivered into the hands of Abram these four kings from the north who came down on this invasion. And Abram chased them out of the land. And then as Abram comes to the king of Sodom, he refuses to keep any of the spoils of war, any of the goods of Sodom. Because he says to the king of Sodom, I don't want you to say, I made Abram great. Abraham wants the glory to go to God. And so after these two battles that Abraham has fought, there's a physical battle against the kings of the north. There's this battle of the heart against the king of Sodom. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. And God said, do not be afraid, Abraham. That kind of implies that Abraham is afraid. It seems a bit strange because you would expect fear to come before the battles, not after it. 
And yet so often, isn't that the case? The last two weeks, we were considering something of the empty promises of paradise that the world offers to us and that we're to resist, that we say no to. And even as we say no to those empty promises of paradise, there's that voice, there's that deceitful whisper that says you've blown it now. You're going to miss out. That deceitful whisper that says God cannot be trusted in this situation. You have to look after Number one, you need to look after yourself because God's not going to do it. God's not going to meet your needs. This voice that seeks to invoke a fear. A fear that leads to disobedience. Don't believe those lies. God said to Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. Perhaps Abraham started to fear reprisals from the kings of the north. Perhaps he started to fear saying no to the goods of Sodom would somehow impoverish him. But the Lord says to Abraham, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear any of those lies because I am your shield, your very great reward. See, following Christ means for us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Christ. But we also need to know, we need to remember that there is no sacrifice that we can make, there is no sacrifice that you can make that is worth comparing to what God has in store for those who love him. We considered that the other week with with Ella and the chocolate bars. There is no sacrifice that you can make that is worth comparing to what God has in store for those who love him. You cannot trust in God and ultimately lose out. It's an impossibility. You cannot give more than God. And what God has in store for Abraham is beyond his comprehension. God has said to Abraham, do not be afraid. Now, your reward is going to be very great. And at this point, Abraham seems to interpret that promise of God in the light of his current situation. Remember, his current situation is his childless. And so in verse 2, Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, you could pour out all the blessings of heaven. You can make me rich, but what is it going to profit? Because it's just going to pass on to this other guy. But the promise of God is not to be interpreted in the light of the present situation. The promise of God is to be interpreted in the light of who God is. God's the creator God who calls into being Things that are not, and the present situation does not define the working of God. So the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. And he says to him, verse 4, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky. Count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
And here we have this aged man. His wife is unable to have children. And God takes him outside. God brings him outside, just like he brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans. It's the same word. God brings him out. He brings him out of his house. He brings him out of this world that he's grown up in with, with this perspective. And God takes him out. Gets him to look at the stars. Count them if you can. Millions upon millions of stars displaying the handiwork of God. Now, perhaps something of this is lost on us uh, with the, the light pollution we have in the West. It means you look up at the night sky and these countless stars. This is God's CV. You want to know what I've done? You know, here are some things that I've done in the past. Look up at the sky. This is what I've done. This is where God takes Abram out to and says, look up at the stars. Try and count them if you can. This is who I am. Just as I've created all these stars, so your descendants, I am going to multiply. We don't look at our present situation. We look at the power of God that is on display. And here under the stars... Now, Abraham interprets the promise of God, not in the light of his current situation, but in the light of who God is, the creator God who calls into being things that were not. And so, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord. It's not just that Abraham believed. Abraham believed the Lord. See, true faith is more like uh, an aeroplane than Santa's sleigh. Bear with me on this. The film Elf, family favorite, we'll be watching it at some point soon. Uh, in the film Elf, Santa's sleigh, how does it fly? Well, the reindeer make it fly. How do the magical reindeer make it fly? Through the spirit of Christmas, which is generated through people's belief in Father Christmas. You have to believe in Father Christmas and this belief it's this magical power that lifts the reindeer into the sky and the sleigh flies makes for a good movie it's nonsense don't go on an airplane and think that is how an airplane is going to fly your faith your belief is not keeping the airplane up in the air faith is not keeping you in the air the airplane is keeping you in the air now faith keeps you on the airplane that's one to ponder. Faith keeps you on the aeroplane, but it's the aeroplane that keeps you in the sky. You know, faith and belief, they have no creative power in themselves. It's not faith that counts. It's where that faith is directed. The question is not so much, do you have faith? Where is your faith directed? Are you trusting in one who is able to deliver what is promised. What is the reason for faith? Abraham believed the Lord, the creator God who calls into being things that were not the one who is able to deliver what is promised. So verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he, that's the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. Now, this righteousness, it speaks of a right way of life, life that is rightly ordered. 
If we want a definition of what rightly ordered life is, we see that back in Genesis 1. Humanity reflecting God, the image of God, spreading the glory of God over all the earth. This righteousness, it is credited to Abraham. It's not something he had of himself. His life doesn't reflect the life that God originally called us to. And we see it's not something he has of himself because it has to be credited to him. It's not something he possesses. It comes as a work from God. But here in verse 6, what we see happening is that God takes Abraham's faith as everything that is needed because God will accomplish everything that is required. God takes the faith of Abraham as everything that is needed because God will accomplish everything that is required. See, this work, this work that is required, this promise, it may be received by faith, but it is guaranteed by God. It's not just faith in itself. It's faith in God, the one who is able to deliver on his promises. And there is a certainty in God's promise, as we see in the verses that follow. Remember, there are two problems. Abram and his wife, they kind of have children and also this land which God is giving to Abram to possess, it is already occupied. And we see this, this issue being dealt with in verse 7. He, the Lord, also said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And God has called Abram so that the purposes of Eden now might be fulfilled uh, through this line of Abram. To be God's people in God's place under God's rule. So that this glorious presence, the glorious goodness of God might fill the whole earth. Now at this point, the land is occupied. We see in verse 19, it's the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kabmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. And so Abram asked the Lord this question, Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? And what we read next does seem a little bit strange, doesn't it? This random collection of animals that the Lord says, well, Bring these to me. A heifer, a goat, a ram, three years old. Oh, and a, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Seems a bit odd to us. Doesn't seem that odd to Abram, because look at, at verse 10. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. It's not explicitly said that God says to Abram, you know, you need to cut them, you need to arrange them like this. Abraham just does it. As though this makes perfect sense to him. You know, if we're walking, well, no, it wouldn't be if we're walking down the street, but if we meet someone and they hold their hand out to us, certainly in pre-COVID days, we know what to do. If someone's walking down the street doing that, maybe just run away. Um, but yeah, if you meet someone and they hold their hand out to you, you instinctively know 
from your culture. Well, it's to hold out the hand and shake it. It's a bit weird when you really think about it. I'm going to just randomly shake someone's hand. But it makes sense to us. We know what to do. We know kind of the cultural reasoning for it, even if we don't understand the cultural history. Seems a bit odd to anyone from the outside. In a similar way, Abraham seems to know exactly what to do here. Takes these animals, cuts them, divides them in two. And likely what is going on here is an ancient, a covenant-making ceremony, something Abraham would have been familiar with. Uh, And the other place that we read of this uh, in Scripture, we've got other ancient records of it, but the only other place in Scripture that we read of something like this is in Jeremiah 34, uh, where the Lord says that those who have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. So the idea is that these animals were sacrificed, they were divided in two, you would separate them and then... These parties would walk in between these animals. And basically, you then made this commitment saying, if I break my promise, basically, may this happen to me. May I be like these animals. Seems a little bit odd to us. That's not the way we would do it today. If you're going to purchase a house and someone suggests you bring those animals again, run away. But it makes perfect sense in that context. But actually, what is strange is verse 11. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Why mention this? Well, because it happened, yeah, but not everything that happened is recorded. Now, why highlight this particular instance? Well, we see in verse 11, the birds of prey, that's how it's translated in English, they they certainly come under this category of carrion birds. Uh, They feed off the carcasses. These are birds that feed off dead animals. And I think they serve as something of a picture of the hostile forces that occupy the land. Forces that feed off death. These hostile forces that need to be driven out of the land. Remember Abram's question is, now how shall I know? How shall I know that I will possess this land? Because the land is already occupied. There is a need for these Forces, these forces that that feed off death, these destructive forces, to be driven out. That needs to happen. How is it going to happen? We see in verse 12, as the sun is setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Then this thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And the first thing that we see here is that there's going to be what seems like a delay. Possession is not going to happen immediately. In fact, it's going to look like that the promise has failed. For 400 years, Abraham's descendants, they're not even going to be in the land. They're going to be in a foreign land. They're going to be oppressed. And we later know that this is going to be the land of Egypt. And the land is still going to be possessed. It's still going to be occupied. 
by the Amorites for this period of 400 years. There seems to be this period where it looks like that the promise has failed. And yet it won't fail. And it cannot fail. The promise is absolutely certain, and we see that by what happens next. Verse 17, when the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And there, in that dark moment, someone passes between those pieces, those two pieces of animals that have been split apart. Someone walks through and makes that covenant. But it's not Abram. What is seen is a smoking brazier with a blazing torch. And it's the same language that gets picked up in Exodus to speak of God's presence with his people. It's the Lord who passes through, and the Lord passes through alone. It's not Abraham who's saying, you know, may I be cursed if this covenant is broken. It is the Lord who passes through. The promise is certain, and so in verse 18, the Lord makes his covenant with Abraham and says, to your descendants I give this land, or as some translations put it, to your descendants I've given this land. The end outcome is certain because it is not dependent upon Abraham. It's dependent upon the Lord. As we saw in verse 6. See, God takes Abraham's faith as everything that is needed. Why? Because God is going to accomplish everything that is required. God is the reason for faith. And for us too. Now we see that the greater promise that is fulfilled. These promises to Abraham, they get filled to the full in Jesus Christ. Jesus brings these promises to their ultimate fulfillment, to their ultimate goal. It's not merely to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, but descendants that will shine like the stars. Not merely to possess the land of Canaan, but to possess the whole earth. And Christ has done everything that is required. And it is faith in him that saves us. It's not faith alone. Faith alone does not save anyone. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves. Because he is the one who delivers. And so God credits to us righteousness. He takes faith in Christ as everything that is needed. Because Christ is the one who accomplishes everything that is required. As we've celebrated this morning, he himself, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That into the barrenness and the deadness of our hearts, 
Now, he is given life. Well, just take a moment to look around you. You don't need to look at the stars. Just, just look around you. Because you are surrounded with monuments of his mercy. The stars, uh, the heavens, they, they display the glory of God. His handiwork. Here, this church, this church exists. This, this church is a testimony of God's mercy, of God's transforming power that, that he would make us his people. That he has saved us from the deadness, the barrenness of our sin and brought us into life, brought us into his kingdom. The only reason that Kingfisher Church exists is because Christ is the one who fulfills the promise of God. As we look around, as we see one another, it's a testimony of God's work. That Christ has done everything that is required. The one who, who not only died for our sins, but was raised, who rules, who reigns. Christ is the one who was overcome. And so the powers of darkness have already been conquered and one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea. And yet now, like with Abraham, there's a time that we're called to a patient endurance. We still see powers of darkness in this world and they will remain for a time. Death and decay and destruction and wickedness. But they will only remain for a time. There is a set end. There is a definite end. Because those forces have been defeated. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. Christ has overcome. All power and all authority has been given to him. as seen in his resurrection. What is the reason for our faith? What is the reason for the hope that we have? It's Jesus Christ himself. It's in him that all God's promises, they find their yes and their amen. So let's encourage one another to continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. To look to Jesus to trust in Jesus because that is everything that is needed. Because Christ has accomplished everything that is required. Let's pray. Father, we've been called to a life of faith. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the reason for faith. Lord, that Jesus Christ is the reason for faith, that we have one who is able, who has fulfilled everything that is required. Lord, and our greatest need, what is needed is that we look to him and we pray that we would do so. Lord, more and more, and whether that is for the first time, 
or whether for the millionth time, that we would keep doing it, that we would keep looking to Christ. Not only as we behold His glory, as we see what you have accomplished through your Son, although we would be changed and we'd be transformed according to your good and your glorious purpose, or to be more like Him. Thank you that we have such a Savior who took our sins that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. And Father's to help us to see that to trust in Christ is everything that is needed in every moment, in every situation because he has accomplished everything that is required. Amen.